Hey, this is Stu at BitcoinFi, the cross-section between financial independence and crypto, and today I'm recording a response to some questions I was getting in my mastermind meeting earlier today. It was kind of a coaching call today, and I was just chatting with some people about my podcast, and I got some feedback from some members of the group that they just didn't understand the utility of Bitcoin. Even uh, one of my friends that has listened to the podcast, at least some of the episodes, still is having a hard time wrapping their mind around the actual utility of Bitcoin. So I wanted to talk about that today. And I've touched on this in some previous episodes. There's kind of a foundational level of knowledge about the properties of money, the pros and cons of gold, fiat currencies, and Bitcoin that I talk about in episode 7. There's also episode 25 which is about censorship resistance, and also episode 27, why you should care about Bitcoin. But I wanted to try and condense things down and try to answer this question a little bit more. And the first idea that I think it's important to start with is that money is just a shared delusion. There's a community of people, there's a group of people, or a country, right? Or internationally, there are multiple countries that agree that money has certain value. And even though If I'm buying something from you and I give you a $20 bill, that $20 bill, like, what does that even mean? It's it's just a piece of paper. It has no value. You can't eat it. It doesn't give you shelter. It's just a piece of paper that we're passing back and forth, right? Same with numbers on a screen in a bank account. It's just the shared delusion that we have all agreed that this paper or this quarter or, or whatever the type of money that we're using, this Bitcoin, it has value. Right, And so when we transfer it back and forth, we're just communicating how much we value certain services and certain items with this shared delusion of money. Okay, The money itself has no value inherently, has no use. You know, People will say that Bitcoin has no inherent value. Well, what does the dollar have? It just has a government backing it and also a military. Right, So we're going to talk about this a little bit. Um, we're also going to talk about the difference between hard money and soft money. And that's one of the other key ideas we're going to try to dive into. Uh, I mentioned earlier the phrase fiat currency. I think this is being thrown around a lot more than before, and people don't know exactly what this means all the time, so I'm going to define it. Even uh, my dad was kind of confused by this phrase when I started using it. Uh, So from Investopedia, fiat money is a government issued currency that is not backed by a physical commodity such as gold or silver but it rather is backed by the government that issues it the value of fiat money is derived from the relationship between supply and demand and the stability of the issuing government okay so it used to be that every dollar that was in circulation in America and in most countries was backed by a certain amount of gold. It was actually redeemable for gold. And that was kind of a rigid system. So when there was wars and the government needed money to fund those wars, it was not like they would do it now. Like today they issue debt and it just comes out of nowhere and they fund it, right, with billions or trillions of dollars. They're just throwing around numbers on a computer essentially. Back then, it didn't work that way. They had to raise taxes, they had to sell war bonds, they had to do stuff like that to fund wars. Or obviously there was uh, some amount of debt that you could issue, but that, that's really what the bonds were, I believe. So, so it was just more rigid. 
And I've learned a little bit more about this. There's this uh, website. It's really pretty interesting. I encourage you to go take a look at some of the charts on there. It's called WTF Happened in 1971. And I've had this tab open for months, but I have never really dove into it much. And there's this guy on YouTube that I follow named Andre Jick, and he gives a really good explanation of this website and hard and soft money. So I will link that in the show notes because it's a little more visual, but it will help you kind of understand some stuff. I guess the main point is what happened in 1971 is that is that President Richard Nixon took the U.S. off the gold standard. Basically, he made the system flexible. He made the dollar a fiat currency backed by trust in the government, not backed by gold. Okay, so what's the difference? The difference is, is that there's a certain amount of gold in the world, and we can mine it from the earth, right? We don't know exactly how much there is, but we do pull out a pretty consistent amount of gold from the earth every single year. So gold has an inflation rate in a way, meaning that the supply of gold increases every year. So I'm just doing a quick Google search, and from Statista.com, I'm seeing that in 2010, there were 2,560 metric tons of gold produced worldwide. And over the course of the last decade, uh, the most gold that was brought out of the earth in a year was in 2018 and 2019 at 3,300 metric tons. Okay, so it's somewhere around 3,000 metric tons of gold is being, you could say, produced every year. So gold has this pretty stable inflation rate of between 2,500 and 3,300 metric tons mined out of the earth every single year, right? So gold is what's known as a hard money. There's a stable quantity being produced, but it's a pretty predictable rate. It's a pretty slow rate. And if it could be easily reproduced, or if you could all of a sudden start mining, we'll say 5,000 metric tons or 6,000 metric tons, you could double the amount of gold that you're pulling out of the earth, or if you could get it off an asteroid or something, uh, then all the value of gold would go down because there's more of it. So gold gets its value from scarcity, essentially. So the difference between gold and a fiat currency backed by government and not by a commodity like gold is, I guess let's go back to 2008. They ended up bailing out the banks, and that came from taxpayer money, but it really was just debt that was printed out of nowhere. And what, what they'll do is the Federal Reserve will do something called quantitative easing, and it's a complicated term, but essentially they're adding liquidity to the market. And I've given this analogy before, but imagine that you are on an island with a thousand people and a thousand coconuts and a thousand dollars. And we'll just say that one dollar equals one coconut. So if a plane flies over the island and drops another thousand dollars, now there's two thousand dollars, one thousand coconuts, one thousand people. Well, now there's two dollars for every coconut. So that's essentially inflation. And so what happens is, is prices will rise when they flood the market with money. And that's what they did. It's created all this money. Money printing has happened around the world, in Europe, Japan, Australia, like to, to combat COVID essentially. And most of the money that is in circulation today was printed in the last two years. It was trillions of dollars. I, I think it was as high as, you know, in the last two years, over half of the money 
was just printed out of thin air and issued as government debt. So basically as they create money, if they create a dollar, it's just another dollar of debt that they're printing out of nowhere, right? Uh, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around, but that's, that's pretty much how it works. So the issue with the fiat currency, kind of like what Investopedia was saying, is that it's just a supply and demand. The more scarce the money is, the more it is worth. The more you print, the less it is worth. And that's why we're facing inflation now. I mean, some of it is supply chain and other factors, like people being cooped up. People are like revenge spending from the post-COVID. People are now realizing, you know, COVID happened, life is short. I don't want to get locked down ever again. I'm going to YOLO. I'm going to go on that vacation. I'm going to go on that trip. I'm going to buy that thing I always wanted because, hey, why not, you know? So there's all sorts of factors. It's consumer demand and how comfortable consumers are feeling with the economy. So there's a lot of factors in play. So there's this data set. I'm looking at this article from the Financial Times, and there are currently 176 currencies around the world that are still in circulation. And there are 599 currencies that are not. And the average lifespan of those 599 failed currencies is only 27 years. But, you know, obviously the U.S. dollar has been circulating for a couple hundred years. And the reason why they fail can be economic. It can be countries being taken over or countries failing or inflation getting so bad that it's, they just have to essentially go bankrupt and restart their financial system. So it's, a, it's kind of an interesting thing, but the track record of fiat currencies is not very good. Even Charlie Munger of Berkshire Hathaway, who hates Bitcoin, has recently commented that fiat currency is going to zero in the next 100 years. Essentially, most fiat currencies, I mean, every fiat currency in history has failed, um, aside from the 176 that are still going. But uh, over time, there has not been a very long run for fiat currencies. They just tend to, to fail. And that's what Munger expects will happen to the U.S. dollar. And then we're, we're going to have to come up with something new. So a lot of Bitcoiners think that Bitcoin is that next thing because it is a hard money. So what's the difference? Kind of like there's a finite supply of gold. That's a good thing for a currency that is backed by gold. And Russia actually has gone back to the gold standard to try and stabilize the ruble. And I think they're actually having some success with that. Basically... Having a commodity-backed currency doesn't allow the government to bail things out because it creates this rigidity in the system. They can do a little bit, but not nearly as much as the bailouts that we've gotten in 2008, 2009, uh, and then in 2020. If they were still on a gold standard, they're, they're not able to do the, the types of things like stimulus checks and, and all this government-funded stuff. They're just not able to do it. So I guess that's the, the use case of fiat currencies is that you have this flexibility to print money out of nowhere, to issue debt, to get you out of these expensive problems and throw money at some of these problems. But you get these ugly side effects of inflation, and at some point it probably will crash down and you'll have to restart the system. I believe they even had this in the Bible. In the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites would have this thing called the year of Jubilee every 50 years. They would forgive all debts, and they would essentially reset their economy. They would reset their currency, 
and wipe away all the debt of individuals, businesses, etc. So that's a biblical thing where they would do that. And I'm not exactly sure why. I'm not a scholar on this, but you know, we have this thing, and Ray Dalio talks about it, but he calls it a deleveraging, and he sees these cycles happening by themselves because we're not doing what they did in the Bible with a every 50-year reset. Uh, what ends up happening is that the market will go for a while, and then after about 70 years, you'll have a big crash. So we had 1930, and then we had another big crash. Obviously, we had the dot-com bubble, but the bigger one would be the 2008 financial crisis which is uh, roughly 80 years. So those are the two, I think, biggest recessions that we've had probably. And because we're not resetting it, like the year of Jubilee in the Bible, it will just happen naturally. The market will do it for you, essentially. So anyway, that year of Jubilee thing is interesting. I would love to dig into it deeper, but I just haven't had time because uh, it seems like a pretty interesting system. Sorry, I'm going off on a little tangent there with that. But the point is, is that you want a little inflation. And Andre Jick makes this point in his YouTube video. But with Bitcoin, Bitcoin is deflationary. Bitcoin has a fixed supply of 21 million coins. That is all there will ever be in the Bitcoin code. And people think, oh, you can change that. Sure, hypothetically, you could. It's extremely unlikely from my point of view, from researching this for the last year, and I'm not going to go into those details right now, but there's only 21 million. It's fixed supply. It is a deflationary currency. It gets more and more scarce every four years. So every four years, there's this halving cycle, and it becomes twice as scarce as it was before. In 2008, Bitcoin would print 50 Bitcoins every 10 minutes. In 2012, it cut down to 25 Bitcoins every 10 minutes. In 2016, it cut down to 12 and a half. And in 2020, now, it's uh, it's cutting down to 6.25 Bitcoins every 10 minutes. And in 2024, it's going to go down to 3.125 Bitcoins, right? And so it just becomes more and more scarce. And that is loosely correlated with all these big run-ups um, in 2013. 2017 and 2021 the year after having tends to be a really good year as the price adjusts to increase scarcity so what happens over time obviously there's a lot of volatility day to day but if you just look at the last 13 years everything has gotten cheaper when priced in bitcoin homes are way cheaper it used to take 10,000 bitcoins to buy a pizza right those two pizzas that someone bought for 10 thousand bitcoins well how much bitcoin does it take to buy a pizza now um it's less than one percent one percent of a bitcoin is three hundred dollars so it's uh 0.001 we'll say and you could uh feed your family and maybe your neighbors for 30 bucks a pizza so anyway everything priced in bitcoin has obviously gotten much much cheaper and i personally expect that trend to continue and the reason why that is, is it is a hard money. It is getting more and more scarce. It is deflationary. So going back to this, Andre Jick makes the case that you want a little bit of inflation. Inflation for the Federal Reserve, the target has been around 2 to 3%. And they've pretty much achieved that for most of the last 20 years, where inflation has stuck around 2 to 3%. The reason why you want that is because 
You want your economy to work. People need to be incentivized to work. If you're going to make whatever it is that you sell or provide a service, it's good to have inflation. So Andre gives the example of a television. If I'm producing a TV today and it's worth $1,000, but the currency is deflating, it's becoming more scarce. I know if I don't buy the TV today for $1,000, that next month it'll be $900, and, and later on it'll be $800, and later on it'll be $100, and eventually it'll be like a dollar. That is how a deflationary currency works. But the problem is, is what kind of economy would we have if it was based on a deflationary currency? No one would buy anything, and that's the problem that some people say Uh, Bitcoin has is that nobody spends it, nobody wants to spend it because they just want to hodl it, right? H-O-D-L, hold on for dear life. People just hang on to it, they're never going to sell it, and that's why you hear these crazy Bitcoiners just say, you never sell your Bitcoin, you just keep it. It's because it's a deflationary currency. So, boy, that sounds good though, doesn't it? I mean, I think you can make an argument, it's like, you're saying to yourself, you're... I would imagine almost anyone listening to this podcast wants to save money, right? You're saying to yourself, well, I want to save $1,000 a month. And the government's saying, nope, sorry, you can try to save $1,000 a month. It's really only $900 a month because we are devaluing your currency. It's really, you know, on a normal year, 2 or 3% inflation, you want to save $1,000 a month? Well, your money's going down when you save it. It's only going to be 970 because of 3% inflation, right? We're taking 30 bucks. So there's this argument that inflation is theft because the government is printing money and they know they are. But I guess the point that Andre made that I found interesting is there would be like so little economic activity if everyone just didn't spend their money. Uh, Like the economy, like it or hate it, all of our stock prices... When you spend money on Netflix, the value of that stock goes up. When you spend money on Apple phones, the value of that stock goes up. And so what that incentivizes is competition. That incentivizes productivity. I've got to come out with the next big thing. I've got to come out with the uh, the iPhone 14. I've got to come up with a new product. So a little bit of inflation is good because it encourages spending and it encourages innovation and it encourages investment. So this might be kind of a tough idea to kind of grasp inflation versus deflation, hard money versus soft money. So gold has a very low inflation rate. If things were still backed by gold, I don't think we'd be having the inflationary problems that we do today that we had in the 70s that took 14 years to get under control. So if we have a repeat of the 70s, uh, buckle up because it might take several years for this to go away. And there's so much more debt and so much more at stake this time around. The Federal Reserve is somewhat painted into a corner. I'm going to have a podcast episode come out about this with a guy that's pretty smart, understands a lot about the Federal Reserve. I just need to edit that podcast and push it out finally. It's been a few months. But anyway, I think my takeaway from all this is, yeah, I earn money in U.S. dollars and I spend money in U.S. dollars, but I'm starting to believe that the money I want to keep I should save in Bitcoin. It's a hard money. It's a deflationary currency. Maybe save it in gold. You know, gold has been a horrible performer and Bitcoin is somewhat disrupting gold. But uh, I think there's a use case there. I think there is an argument to be made that owning some amount of precious metals, gold and silver, is not a horrible idea. 
so I'm looking into that as well. But uh, the problem with that is also theft, the same with Bitcoin, really. There's different security things, like where are you going to keep your gold? Under your mattress, bury it in your yard, you know, in a safe. you got to be able to secure it. It's heavy. It's not very portable. So if you want to hear about more about that, listen to episode 7. But I guess my point is, is that you try to save your money, and it melts. The U.S. dollar is a melting ice cube. The euro is a melting ice cube. You want to save your money, but you know it's going down in value. And so, obviously, the solution to that is to invest, but everyone needs to have some amount of money uh, in cash. So that's the tricky part. So diversify, you know, have some investments, have some stocks, whatever you want to keep, I would say buy in Bitcoin. Bold statement. But that's the conclusion I've come to. If fiat currency, no matter what it is, whether it's the dollar, the euro, or whatever, is a melting ice cube, then I would just say that Bitcoin is like a cube of tungsten. It's a cube of metal. It's not going to melt. It's going to be there. It's dense. It's unbreakable in a sense. It's fixed. The inflation rate, while it is being mined until the year 2140, is a fixed transparent inflation rate until all the Bitcoin has been released. Sorry if this is going over your head, but I guess that's the way I see it is you can either save your money in an ice cube or you could save it in a chunk of metal and in a hundred years one of them will still be there. The other one there's no guarantee. So let me put it another way. How fun would it be to play basketball against someone, right? You're playing one-on-one -on -one basketball and it's 10 to 10, but they decide they're going to just double their score. They're just going to change the points. And now they have not 10 points, they have 20 points. And so now you're 10 points down, right? So you have to catch back up. So you start scoring, and now it's, it's tied 25 to 25. And they just double it again. And now they have 50 points, and you have 25. It's not a very fun game. Well, that's the game you're playing with the U.S. government, because... You're saying to yourself, I'm going to save $1,000 a month, and they're going to say, no, we just printed $13 trillion out of thin air. And so the money that you had relative to the total supply keeps going down, and you're thinking, I'm trying to get ahead. I'm trying to get ahead. I mean, it's like you've been saving up a down payment for five years, a 10% down payment, we'll say, on a house. Well, that house used to be $300,000, and now it's $750,000. So, like, what are you supposed to do? I can't say for sure what the answer is. Obviously, invest. Um, it's so tough with all the conflicting financial priorities people have. But, obviously, if you had gotten even just a 1000 or two in Bitcoin five years ago uh, and kept buying, you would be in a lot better position, right? I, there's no way anyone could deny that unless they lost it through a hack. So I guess that's the whole point is Bitcoin has monetary policy dictated by code, secured by all these miners, and no one's going to be able to change the rules on you with Bitcoin, whereas the government is going to change the rules on you all the time. Now, there's this huge narrative that Bitcoin is an inflation hedge and yet is down 64%. From its all-time highs in November. I, I addressed this somewhat recently. 
but Bitcoin, it's you got to know the game you're playing. So it's the same thing with the stock market. If you check the stock market on any given day, you know, it could be going up, down, sideways, but you've got, like, why is a certain stock moving a certain way? Uh, well, sentiment changed or management changed. You've got day traders that are going in and out of stocks. You've got meme stocks maybe pumping. You've got uh, acquisitions happening. Uh, but if you aggregate it all into an index fund and you kind of buy the whole thing, you know that over time it goes up, but there are going to be times when it goes down. And and the whole thing is, though, is that you've got long-term holders. You've got day traders that are constantly buying and selling. You've got people doing options. You've got people shorting stocks. You've got people that are in retirement that are selling off their portfolio month to month. So there's all these factors going on that could affect how the stock market moves on any given day. But you have to know the game you're playing, right? Um, it's the same with Bitcoin. You've got these institutions that are there. You've got these Bitcoin holders. You've got these day traders. You've got these momentum traders. Um, what's it going to do on any given day? There's just so many crazy moves in the stock market lately with some of the more stable companies. It's it's making it look ridiculous compared to Bitcoin. Um, but anyway, you have to know the game you're playing. The Bitcoiners are buying. The people that understand and can see the need for a deflationary currency are buying because I still believe the trend will be that things will decrease in relation to Bitcoin. U.S. dollar is a melting ice cube. Investing in stocks is great. You're still in a currency that's deflating, but it usually kind of outruns it to some degree if you're choosing good investments, right? Uh, obviously, even now, the stock market returns an average of, what, 9 or 10% a year? Well, inflation is raging at 9% a year, and stocks are crashing. We're almost in a bear market, a 20% down from all-time highs, just about. Uh, we're right on the cusp. So, so uh, who knows what the stock market will do and how it's going to do with all this inflation and, and tamping that down. Um that's why, and same with real estate. Real estate's usually, traditionally, a great inflation hedge. That's why I think it makes sense to have a little bit of all of it. Uh, I've got a really good split between stocks, Bitcoin, real estate, and business equity in our household. And I think it makes sense to, to have a little bit of all of it. Uh, whether your split is 30, 30, 30, and 10 into Bitcoin, 10%, or 50, 40, uh, five and five or you know whatever you choose is is fine but i do think one percent bitcoin is a really good move for the majority of people it's a deflationary currency and i think that we are seeing the use case of that despite it being down uh 64 percent from its all-time high you look at what happened in these having cycles I'll, I'll link a site uh it's called lookintobitcoin.com and you can see every four years on the stock to flow model and on some of these other models. But every time there's a halving that kicks off every four years, 2012, 2016, 2020, we saw a big run up the year after, 2013, 2017, 2021. And uh, all I can say is I'm looking forward to 2024. We are 64% off of all-time highs. Usually we reach new all-time highs in the year after a halving. I would say that now is a pretty good time to start 
getting Bitcoins. So if you'd like to, grab some free Bitcoin with Strike, with Swan, with Coinbase, and just get started. Anyway, this whole episode has kind of gone off the rails. It's gone a bit longer than I anticipated it going. Hopefully it makes sense to you. Let me know if you still have questions. And also, I would still strongly recommend listening to episode uh, 27 and episode 25. That talks more about the utility, the censorship resistance, and the freedom aspects of becoming a self-sovereign individual, being your own bank. And the last thing I'll mention, going along with censorship resistance, is fast, low-fee, borderless payments, peer-to-peer, no intermediary, a public ledger that is immutable, that is very secure. It's uh, it's pretty powerful stuff. So I think once you start diving into the rabbit hole, spending an hour or two a week just learning, I think the value and the utility kind of starts to speak for itself. But it takes a while for a lot of people to get there. There actually was an article I saw from yesterday. It says, new survey sheds light on people's concerns about investing in crypto. And... The reasons for hesitation, number one, 42% said they don't understand its value. 39% the value is too unstable. 35% is it seems like a scam. I talked about this uh, with Michael Waymans where he said at the beginning of our interview in part one that Bitcoin seems like an obvious scam. Um, 31% said security concerns. That is a huge issue as well. And that's one thing I want to focus more on is the security concerns. And I did do one of my first episodes about that, maybe episode two. Uh, maybe it was uh, what to what to know before you buy Bitcoin. And then 24% said they don't know how to. Well, I'll tell you what. Strike is the easiest way, followed by Swan Bitcoin. If you can do Venmo, you can do Strike. If you wanted to, you could have $10 of Bitcoin in the next three minutes if you just download the Strike app. And would love if you did my referral link because we both get $10. Boom, you have $10 Bitcoin. That easy. As always, remember that financial independence is doable. And if you want to book some time with me, feel free to send me an email, contact me, or click on my Calendly link, and I'm happy to sit down and help out with anything you need. All right, we'll talk soon.